0: You may have previously listened to this podcast when it was called the PropTech Ramble, but we realized we were rambling about so much more than just PropTech. So we're back with a brand new series and a brand new name, The Measure Podcast by Metricus. Just like the last series, There'll be no bullshit, but there will be some rambling. I'm Michael Grant, COO and co-founder of Metricus, and I'll bring you a new guest every Wednesday for the next 10 weeks to get the measure of topics such as productivity in the workplace, building efficiencies, sustainable buildings, and ESG. No matter where you're listening, I hope you enjoy the new series and get some value from it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Measure. Today, I have with me Omar Ramirez, who is the co-founder of The Collective. Omar, thanks very much for coming on board, mate, and and having a chat.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So rather than me do it very badly, Omar, can you just please introduce yourself, The Collective, and talk about your experience prior to The Collective, because that's really important for people to understand.
1: Yeah, so my name is Omar Ramirez. I'm the co-founder of Collective. And Collective, we describe it as working at the intersection of work and place. Um, you know Collective was kind of born out of my co-founder Kayla and my frustration from when our, we were younger in our careers. You know we found that over time it was very hard to find information about how to you know create a great workplace, how to learn how to be a workplace professional and really just how pretty much anything about workplace was very hard to find in, in the on the internet you run into a lot of information that's either based on SEO, or algorithms and it's not necessarily best-in-class research or best-in-class information it's just what rises to the top of the SEO funnel and we wanted to help solve that problem and so we started with this thesis of we want to bring better information and curate better information for workplace professionals and the second part of this is helping uh, workplace professionals kind of level up and reskill in this new uh, era of working that we're in right now and like all this change that has happened And then the third part is obviously bringing, you know, solutions or better solutions to those workplace professionals and bringing those solutions providers and workplace professionals closer together. Because we think that by, you know, helping workplace professionals become better and helping them vocalize their use cases, they can actually help make products better over time as well. And those solutions providers are having a very hard time finding those people right now. And there's a lot of great new solutions out there that are just being built every day and new and current solutions are getting better every day. So we want to help bridge that gap and help make the world of workplace just better overall
0: thank you i think everyone should get what that is now that's a good thing and i think you're right i mean the 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 internet and when google when it first happened was all about good information now as you say it's all about paid ads and rankings right it doesn't matter if you're great if you've paid enough money you can be at the top so it's not (laughs) always the top search that you should click on
1: and we did like you know we surveyed a lot of workplace leaders in the beginning when we were starting to gestate this idea And we found that 97% of the people who replied to our surveys were getting all of their future of work information from LinkedIn, which had us a little bit concerned because that's not necessarily the best source of all of your information. It's a source of some information. That's good. It's good for discovery. But we want people to go deeper.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't want LinkedIn for everything. So uh, especially (laughs) not strategy.
1: (laughs) No, hopefully not.
0: So we are today covering off productivity, given your role at The Collective and, you know, Miro and Atlassian and Stripe and Dropbox and Netflix and Google and all the other places you've been. Part one is what do we mean by productivity in the workplace? And and you said recently on, uh, in a LinkedIn post that we need to radically reimagine how we think about productivity in the workplace. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what, what you mean by that to the people listening?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about productivity in the workplace, we still talk about productivity as though there's only one measure for productivity or there's only one type of working. You know, Cal Newport on the HBS podcast recently, and he's the author of Deep Work, and he himself is a you know engineer. And what he was talking about was this idea that productivity for engineering can be pretty easy to quantify because if you're using an agile methodology, people are pulling down tasks, they're completing them. And like, you can measure that productivity based on that. Similarly, uh, I was at a conference earlier this week and one of the leaders there was saying, yeah, it's very easy for us to measure the effectiveness of our workplace and our productivity because we're a consulting organization. We measure, you know, based on billable hours, rates, like, like, you know, customer satisfaction those are our metrics. Okay, great, they have their own measure of productivity. But every company really needs to have its own measures in place for how they measure productivity. And I think we think of, when we talk about productivity as an aggregate, we talk about it as though it's a monolith or it's a monotype and there's there's not really one type of productivity. And I think that's important for people to understand. It's different by industry, it's different by segment, it's different by team uh, within your organization as well as you become an enterprise level organization.
0: Following on from that, we, we have to, we have to reimagine the workplace. But what has come about during COVID and post-COVID is, is burnout. So, so video burnout, not moving at home burnout, you know, it's, it's important consideration to take in as a business. You know, what, what have you seen in your career? What, what would you recommend to people?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few factors in place here. And that one, I think we're more cognizant of ourselves than we ever were before. When the kind of, you know, the train stopped to a grinding halt in 2020 because of the lockdowns, I think we all had this moment to reevaluate and realize and realize, like, you know, how tired we might have been and just to kind of stop and evaluate what we wanted to let back into our lives. And I talk about this a lot with my friends is like, what are we letting back into our lives post pandemic? And yes, people are more burnt out now than ever, I think. And like, you know, the Future Forum's recent uh, polling actually shows this from their winter 2022 survey is that levels of self-reported, of course, levels of burnout are higher than they've ever been during the course of the pandemic. So I think it's 42 percent of people were reporting a burnout. Wow. And I, I think the reason for this is actually because what we've done is, you know, we went into this survival mode of hybrid working or remote work during the you know, first phase of the pandemic. And we've had these, you know, issuances of Omicron or Delta and Omicron variants that kind of kept pushing us back into this, you know, survival hybrid mode. And because of this, we have just taken the ways of working that worked in an office and translated them to a remote version, which is not a good way of remote working. And so, you know, I sat down with an architect friend a few weeks ago, and I guess it's a few months ago now. And, you know, she was like, yeah, well, we can't get any work done during the day because there's all these meetings scheduled because everyone's just, you know, collaborating all the time on Zoom meetings. And I was like, well, when are you getting work done? She's like, well, we're getting work done at night. I'm like, well, why don't you just eliminate some of those meetings? And like, it it really, what it said to me was that they had just not considered their ways of working and, you know, sat down as a team and said, how do we want to reorganize ourselves in order to be the most effective we can be in this new paradigm that we're working in? Because they've decided to work hybrid and, but they haven't adjusted any of their ways of working. So yes, you can make this decision to work in a new way. But if you don't adjust your ways of working, it's going to lead to burnout. And I think that is a lot of what we are seeing is that people are um, people understand burnout better than they ever have before. And they understand what it looks like because there's better education about it, I think. So awareness is part of this. But the other part is we haven't adjusted a lot of our ways of working, which is leading to burnout for people. We weren't meant as humans to sit on Zoom for four to five hours a day or six hours a day or seven hours a day.
0: The term came around during COVID, didn't it? Video burnout was, was one of the new terms, right? That, that because, because we were on video for so much of the day, like, I mean, I, I, some people I spoke to during that time that had to, well, everyone was working, right? But some people were on Zoom calls for seven, eight hours a day. I mean, it was just crazy back to back as well, you know, like r- rarely getting up for lunch or a break or, you know, just taking a couple of liters of water to their desk in the morning and and kind of just going going
1: forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way for teams is to actually sit down look at their organization, understand what metrics they want to be measuring. You know, OKRs are a good example of one way that companies can start to do this, right? You know, setting objectives and setting key results as targets and measuring those like measuring those things is one form of measuring productivity, right? Like if you're measuring your goals, you're measuring a output, and I think that's one of the reasons why OKRs came into such popularity, you know, partially because of Google and the companies that you know, gestated out from them. But I think one of the reasons they became so popular is because it is so hard to measure productivity for knowledge workers who aren't things like engineers, et cetera. So I think the best way to measure productivity, whether in office or remote, is actually based on outcomes as opposed to output, right? So are we accomplishing our goals? How are we like actually moving towards those things and is it moving the thing forward um and we we at least the teams that we've talked to over the past few years it's actually very hard for workplace teams because we are so sentiment and engagement driven organization a lot of the time you know we want people to be productive we want people to feel good we want people to be healthy and a lot of those things it's it's becomes more difficult to apply metrics to them but you can you can do it it just takes more work And what we talk to a lot about, uh, what we talk with teams a lot about in our consultancy on the other side of my life is actually understanding how to set those KPIs and, you know, describe the ROI of what workplace is and to start to measure it in a quantifiable way. Because, and the Leesman Index does a very good job of this as well, like measuring the effectiveness of a a physical workplace, at least. Um, But I think that if for companies individually, they need to start understanding what their metrics are. And I think the consultancy setting, you know, their metric, whether it's a good metric or not, based on, you know, number of number of billable hours, et cetera, is good, right? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you have a lot of clients, you're getting a lot of billable hours. So therefore you are in the eyes of that consultancy productive and they have other scores tied to it as well, which is good.
0: We moved over to OKRs just over a year ago now. and And the same thing, we have different people. We have software developers who as you say they've got their tasks in github and gitlab but that's easy right that you've got to build the front end you've got to build a new ux ui but some of the stuff that we do around the marketing piece that that's there's a lot of research work that goes into that and that is much harder and again operations people are working on multiple projects some are moving forward some are on hold some of this but the OKRs for us has has been a good change because as you just rightly said everyone in the company needs to think about them a little bit more but you can measure you can really measure everything if you want it just takes more time and you've just got to look at things a slightly different way.
1: yeah and i think i think you touched on something interesting there and that like yeah it, it takes effort and all of these things require considered effort and i think um People are surprised when you see very progressive organizations like Google and Amazon, you know, calling people back to the office. But I think to put my empathetic hat on, I think it's very hard for large scale enterprise organizations to change their ways of working and to do that work across 40,000, 50,000, 80,000 people requires a massive amount of change management and a massive amount of work. Do they have the time or have they had the time to start to do that work? Perhaps. But I do have a little bit of empathy for the idea that I understand how hard that work is and you understand how hard that work is as a founder, you know, and that considered effort is very difficult. And I think that um, that is what holds people back a lot is knowing that that effort is required.
0: It is hard, but once you get it right and everyone buys into it, you do see your company moving forward. You can see it because you can track it, right? Part two is uh, exploring what makes a great place to work. So again, given your career, what would you consider the top three factors in general when it comes to making a great place to work?
1: Yeah, I think if you can make it a seamless experience, if you can make it a frictionless experience, and I'll keep using the word experience because it's what I believe in, but like frictionless, seamless And a truly enabled experience, then I think that you have hit the marks of what makes a workplace effective, right? So, enablement, I mean, you're giving people the tools and resources they need to actually get their job done once they get there. You know, reducing friction, we don't want to have people, and we talk about this a lot in physical space design, right? Is like the idea of you want people to not hit these bumps in the road where oh, this, my badge doesn't work. This thing doesn't work. It causes friction in your day that then takes a mental toll on you that makes you frustrated and less likely to return the next time to that same experience. Right? If you keep having frustrations with the, this, this, a coffee shop you go to, you're less likely to visit that coffee shop. Similarly, we're competing for a percentage of time now with our employees, and we want to make that a frictionless experience. And, you know, seamless, I think your technology and the implement and the things that you're using, the tools that you're using should just work. You know, if an employee's work from home setup is more functional than their office setup, 100% of the time, they're going to choose the work from home setup. (laughs) And, you know, the the latest Leesman index shows that people's work from home setups have become more effective over time than their workplaces are. And they actually rate their work from home setups more highly than their office setups as 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 at an aggregate level as well people have started to improve their work from home setups more and I think a lot of offices and a lot of workplace people have not upgraded the offices or updated the offices in three years and that's a concern because it's slowly falling behind the home setup
0: yeah and a lot of people did because you know it went from two months to three months to five months to nine months people Wanted to be as comfortable as possible, right? So people did upgrade. They, if the company didn't supply a big screen, they went and bought a big screen. If they didn't have a good chair, they went and bought a good chair. And if you've spent all of that money, like you said, and I can be super comfortable at home. I've got two screens. I'm really productive, you know. And, and I've got my mouse. I've got everything I need. I'm good because if, like you say, if you go to the office and it's crap, then it's like, guys, you're gonna have to do more to get me back here, right? So I have, <laughs> I have to say, though, a lot, a lot where we are in London Bridge around here, a lot of companies did do fit outs during COVID. So I'm hoping they're all much better now, but quite a lot did. But I, I know a lot of people still didn't. Right. So it's that is that is that is, the, that is the battle on people's hands is is home is better and more productive than the office. That that's that's one of the biggest challenge, I think, over the next couple of years, really. For I know lots of big companies want people back for all the reasons you said and more, but it's hard if 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 working from home is better and more comfortable and you're more productive and it just feels better and you're more relaxed that's that's a big challenge
1: yeah but i think it's a i think it's a worthwhile challenge for the companies who really do believe in physical presence and really do believe in that kind of camaraderie and i think that we should be excited about that challenge as workplace professionals in that you know our jobs were kind of a little bit rote and people were doing this thing which i hated which was like copying what google did but not copying the science behind it they'd be like oh well google did this so we're just going to do that too but they only copied at a visual level (laughs) they didn't actually understand the deep science that was behind a lot of that decision making and that always uh, upset me for example if if people don't understand what this is you know if you look at the way that google decided how to have espresso machines in their office you know they did the math of how long an engineer would have to go out to get a cup of coffee in the city they were located in and the math of how much that engineer costs in hours, and then they put a whiteboard next to the coffee area. So when people were crossing or crisscrossing, okay, engineer gets a cup of coffee. We may have spent $10,000 on an espresso machine, but that engineer is worth X hundreds of dollars an hour. And now they bump into another engineer at that whiteboard, and suddenly you have a collaboration moment. And these people are working together and discussing different ideas. And that kind of collaboration um, is really invaluable for companies like that, and those were the kind of considered things. That I think it, you know we're now challenged to consider how can we make our you know employees effective and design great experiences both for working from home, for co-working spaces, for flexible spaces, and for for dedicated workspaces and for offsite spaces. And I think that's just so much more fun and so much more interesting. I think it's actually like a really great time to be in workplace. Yes, there's crazy things going on. Yes, there are resource constrained. Yes, there, the financial dynamics of the economy are whiffy, depending where you're at in the world, especially. But I think that uh, it's an exciting time and we get excited about it.
0: I agree with you. Everyone should be up for the challenge and take the challenge. The challenge is make work at work in the office better than work at home. And
1: yeah, can you do that?
0: Bring everyone back because they want to be back. Beyond the three factors of the office, what about the top three physical things that an office should have for people and and this this is rather broad let me try and narrow it down so we're talking about productivity here so what are the three biggest things that people should have in an office for productivity for their teams for coming back to the office in 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 your opinion
1: yeah i mean i think there's there's kind of like too many variables to list in three
0: (laughs) it's hard to get this down to three but we'll, we'll, we'll see how you go (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think um and it's funny cuz this, this is just because most this is a recency thing in my head as well but I think people should actually go check out the Leesman index information cuz they have 15 variables that they identify in their research right. for what makes a workplace very effective. They have 15 specific variables that you should get right and they kind of call that their basics. And I think that's right. I would I'll loop that into one thing and call it the basics, right? So have a very if you can nail the basics of having a seamless experience That's one. And what I I mean by that in physical design is, you have a space that is safe, that is comfortable, that has the functional tools and technology that they need in it, and that has acoustical privacy and things of that nature, right? So, like being able to accomplish the work you have, your space is designed for a purpose. I think that's kind of step one. The basics are a big bucket, but if you can nail the basics, you've kind of won the war for that first step on the like the hierarchy of needs pyramid. Like you've nailed the basics of like general. enablement. And then if you can layer on top of that, like better technology so that people can actually accomplish higher level work and collaborate really, really well. I think that's the second step. And then the third, I think, is enabling that social environment or that social collaboration that doesn't happen necessarily on Zoom or in a digital realm yet. It's been very hard for us to reproduce this. You know, Dropbox is, we wrote in our newsletter um, bookmarks this week about, you know, Dropbox's first virtual, life and virtual first survey And they actually make note of the fact that, you know, those social cohesion moments have been very hard to replicate in a digital first um, environment. And, you know, if a company can also like on the physical side, enable those social interactions and those cohesion moments in a physical space by having great collaboration spaces and, you know, designing their office in a way that brings people together um, instead of just doing heads down individual work, because you can obviously do that at home now. I think that those three things can obviously like help us to drive create a place that is actually like a very functional, very welcoming and socially cohesive environment. And though that it's interesting because like the, the the design topic is so complex because there's like fifteen variables for each of those that go into it um that all play a role. And it, it the design, consider design is one of those things where it's about the shape of objects. It's about the feel of the objects. It's about the textures. And you know, this it's, it's um, it is, it all has to be considered. And that's when you walk into a space that is truly designed well, it is um, you, you just, it just feels different. And I always say this to people when I talk to them about design though, is like, I think we get caught up with this idea of efficiency in workplace and within corporate real estate, especially but I think that there is nothing effective, or there's nothing efficient, I should say. There's nothing efficient about your favorite coffee shop. But your favorite coffee shop is a great place to go to. It's warm. It's welcoming. The environment's great. You probably can get some heads down work done there because there's just the right amount of noise. But from a design standpoint, there's a lot of superfluous space. Not everything necessarily like is like efficient as we would describe it in corporate real estate terms. So I think that's important to consider as well as... Um, designing a space for quote-unquote efficiency does not necessarily mean the most productive or the most enabled space.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and there's two offices that I love to go to. One is uh, Accenture's office in 1 Manhattan West. The, every floor is different and they've they they have got the basics right amongst everything else. And the other one is a, is a customer of ours called Aldar in Abu Dhabi. They've just built a new office for their for their team they had a smaller office inside the shopping mall itself now they've built an office attached to the mall but completely separate building and when you walk into that space it's very neutral colors but it's very the 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 look and feel of that space because they've, the the desert isn't too far away they've kind of brought that into the office but the way you feel when you walk in is instantly relaxed there's this you know there's a the The feel of it is the feel of it is very good, and that that's how I grade an office. Right, is if you walk in and you're instantly feeling relaxed, then there's a big tick in the box straight away. How important is the workplace design? straight out the, the gates to link to the workplace experience. The workplace experience should almost come before the design in my head. And I don't do what you do, right? But should it come before the design, you know, the workplace experience, thinking about what you want first before you design it?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. If, if you're not starting with a good amount of information or a good um, framework for what you're designing for, you're going to have a pretty poor design. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of that copy and pa- copy and pasting. It's like the easy button of copy and pasting someone else's model. Like, oh, they have this cool thing. It must be great. But the best offices and the best workplaces and the best venues have always had a considered design to them. Ilsa Crawford, who's obviously like a dame of inter- interior design. She's amazing. Um, she has this very like specific way she designs interiors and down to like the, even like the cloths and the stories behind the fabrics they select and like the, all the you know, design of the interiors is all considered. But I think in the same way she considers the the people who are going to live in that place or the people who are going to reside in that place or the people who are going to use that space, that's what designers' jobs are. like. Interior designers and architects, their job is to consider the person who they're designing that location for. Uh, you know, and I think what a lot of offices and workplaces were doing is essentially copying someone else's house and you wouldn't want to live in somebody else's house. That's a very uncomfortable thing. It's not made for your family. It was made for their family. It's designed for their needs. And I think that when you, when companies were copying and pasting their design, that's what they were doing. We talk about workplace experience, I should say, as workplace experience is the combination of workplace and employee experience. And those two things, when they're together, and then you start to develop that first, you develop that very strong cultural model first. And then you take that and you translate that cultural model into a physical environment. That's a very strong thing. And that actually reinforces that same culture and enables the culture in a way that I think a lot of companies have missed the mark on in the past. Um, But some companies have done it very, very well. And you see them, you know, the decision making process also translate into the physical space.
0: Yeah. And and do you think that's because historically it was we need a new office, we've taken this out, we've taken the lease, and we need to move in by this date because we're paying for it. Do you think there's all, previously been a rush, and now the challenge you talked about earlier, the challenge, I think, is to take a little bit more time to get it right rather than just say "Let we've got to be in by this date because we need to get bums on seats. You know, is that, that's, that's probably what we need to do more of now, right, is take more considered time before we make any decisions and, and gather a lot more data points maybe.
1: Yeah. I think it's a little bit of that. Um, it's a little counterintuitive. It's kind of like the idea of slowing down to speed up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. You slow
1: down so you can go faster later, but it's, if you slow down and take the time to make the effort, you're going to wind up with a more effective workplace. If you go fast and you're like, Oh, well we have to have butts in seats at this point. You should be saying like, I think we can last another month or two. Like you don't really actually have to have butts in seats. Like let's make it a great experience. Let's communicate that to our employees. Why we're taking a little bit of extra time because we want to make it a great place and we want to make it really effective. And I think there's an opportunity to do that now more so than ever before. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that is part of it. You know, we were kind of pressured by this idea we have to have butts in seats the office has to be open because people need to be effective but i think a lot of that was because we didn't have the tools and people weren't used or people weren't trained to work remotely so like yeah if your lease lapses for like two months and you suddenly like have a gap between your leases and then you have to move in two months later but you create a more effective design that's going to make your employees you know five percent more effective over the course of that lease i think that's a smart choice and i think that taking time and doing that considered effort is Something we always, you know, hammer on about with people is just do the thing that takes a little bit more time because it's going to make you more effective on the long run.
0: My second boss, when I was an apprentice electrician many, many moons ago, he would say, Mick, measure twice, cut once.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And that's, you know, it's the idea. You know, young apprentices tend to in every every format tend to rush ahead. Um, And I think that's uh, it's a common mistake, right? You're rushing. You're trying to move fast. But in, in fact, by moving slow, you are being fast.
0: Last section. So you talk online a lot about employee-centric models as a topic. Can can you explain that? What you mean by that, and your, the term of that from your perspective?
1: Yeah, and yeah, I, I should caveat this with the idea that there's always going to be a balancing of the business needs and the individual needs, right? At, and there's at times in crises or crises where the needs of the business will win out over the needs of the individual or the needs of the employee. And I think that is unfortunately, or for, like, however, your perspective is on this, um, just the nature of business in a capitalistic society. For us, when we talk about employee centric uh, organizations, what we're talking about is the idea that you're putting the employee experience at the center because they are your greatest assets. You know, bar the lease that you are, you know, spending millions of dollars on or the physical spaces and the benefits, employees are your largest cost, but they're also the thing that produces, you know, the revenue for your company, right? Your employees are producing this revenue by making your product better, by, you know, making sales, by like finding new customers, producing whatever you're producing as a company. And by putting the employee at the center, you have this focus on understanding their needs, their requirements, and the focus on enabling them. And we say employee-centric from the standpoint of, There's always been a little bit of a disconnect between workplace, HR, corporate real estate, IT, benefits, and the other teams that kind of encircle the employee experience. We talk about employee centrism as the idea that from the first contact a recruiter has with an employee, that first phone call, that first email, to the day that employee exits, that is the holistic employee experience. And focusing on that journey is employee centric. Because we are all, in fact, in service of this employee that generates revenue for the company, right? That's the idea. And I think that if we can uh, focus on that, I think that is a um, going to create a great outcome for your company.
0: I would agree. And, and actually, you're the first person I've heard say that in a long time, but it is the full end to end.
1: Yeah. And I, I think the, you know, I, I started studying design thinking back in, I think, 2016, 2017, because I was really interested in why people acted certain ways when interacting with objects. And I kept getting surprised by people when we were designing spaces, they kept surprising me with the way they would interact with things. And I I ran into this book called the design of everyday things by Don Norman. And it, you know, it led me to this study of UX and the study of design thinking through the IDEO method. And, you know, journey mapping is a huge part of that. And I, the understanding, the journey of an employee on a day-to-day basis And the trials and tribulations they have and the concerns they have and, you know, empathizing with their journey um, has become a really important part of uh, what I do now. Um, But it's also a very important part, I think. It's always been an important part of product design, right? Understanding your user, understanding what their concerns, understanding their needs, creating those personas. And I think personas have their own issues. But understanding the journey and understanding those friction points and, you know, solving for those can make a huge difference for workplace teams and make your or your employee experience just much better. And I'm surprised that, you know, more people in our industry um, don't understand how to journey map and don't understand how to reduce friction points. I think that's actually an important skill set for the future for teams who work in workplace and facilities and corporate real estate. Again,
0: the same as making the workplace better than what it was, being employee-centric and thinking about all the touch points and how valuable these people are to you. I mean, one of our values and our main values is our our people. So, you know, our people make our team, So and our team make our customers happy. So, you know, if they're not happy, the customer's not happy, and then you're all in the shit basically. (laughs)
1: That's true. It's true. Yeah, customers are... uh... The lifeblood, right? Yeah, well, your
0: employees are and then your customers are because if if both of those are happy, then you're in a good place. I've got three quick-fire questions that we do at the end. So thank you very much for for running through everything. So number one, what's the biggest myth you'd like to bust about productivity in the workplace?
1: That people actually understand what makes them effective or productive and that people are like, you know... I think there's this idea that people intrinsically understand how to be effective and that they don't need any assistance. And, you know, that's a very rare person who actually understands how to be effective and like works like, you know, they understand habit formation and how to be effective and like what the 80-20 principle is. You know, they understand like, you know, there's very few people who actually do that. Most employees need your assistance and they would probably appreciate some assistance in understanding how to be effective and how to be productive and I think companies assume that people are understand how to be their most productive, effective selves. And I think that we could go a long way to enable people more and to do a better job of enabling.
0: Cool. Yeah. So uh, number two, can you briefly summarize the relationship between employee experience and workplace experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, workplace experience to me is actually the combination of workplace, physical workplace or digital workplace and the experience employee experience, which is, you know, all of HR and people ops. So like bringing those two formations together into one holistic circle is what workplace experience is because, you know, you kind of had your parties previously who were only concerned with physical aspects or, um, the manifestations of those in a digital world, like eight or corporate real estate facilities, workplace. And then you had HR, the people team, the benefits and communications. And bringing those two parties together forms that whole circle. And I think that is the most effective form of that. So, you know, bringing those two parties, workplace experience is the combination of the both.
0: And finally, given the podcast is now called The Measure, what's the one piece of data that you can't do your job without?
1: Ooh, one piece of data that I cannot do my job without. Gosh, you know, that's a tough question. We're just just getting started at Collective. And I guess at this point, our, our, our measure is how many people are we reaching right for right now for us like where we want to reach as many people in the workplace world as possible and to enable them so for us it's how many people were we able to reach but not just reach but engage with over the past week and if we can keep that number of people we're engaging with in a you know a really true deep way growing that will be uh, an effective result for us
0: Cool. Well, hopefully some people who've listened to this will join up and come along and listen because there's, a, I think what you're doing it is needed for some companies more than others. But again, like you said, we're, we're all learning. This is a very different place now to where we worked. You know, I'm an old man. So work now is in, in the office is very different to what it was years ago.
1: And I think too, I think people forget that there's an entire cohort now of people in the workplace who are they might be twenty five now, who have never been full time in the office ever. So when people talk about this idea of like, oh, the workplace was amazing. This is what it was like, those people have no clue. They have no context about that. (laughs) And so I think it's important to put on the empathy hat and understand these people graduated during a pandemic and they were immediately working remotely from home and having to find a job during a recession. And like, you know, I think it's an important contextual switch and understanding like, you know, hey can we show these people a great experience and show them why coming together in person can be uh, a great part of a holistic workplace experience?
0: I tell you what, that's a great way to sign off, Omar. Thank you. That's, and I couldn't agree more. There is, it's very different to has ever been before. So Omar, thank you very much for your time, mate. It was lovely to speak to you and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon.
1: No, same. Thank you so much.
0: Cheers, mate. Have a good day. Thanks so much for listening to The Measure Podcast. Before you go, we can see a lot of people are listening and enjoying the podcast, but aren't leaving us a review. So if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you'd be so kind. Please also leave us some comments. It helps us provide great guests and have great chats. No bullshit, no small talk, but valuable information to help people in their roles. And finally, Don't forget to subscribe to The Measure now so you don't miss anything.